to another episode of Sean and Ed's Do Baseball. I'm Sean. And I'm Ed's. And we are bringing you baseball history. That's right. We're a bi-weekly baseball history podcast where the story catcher doesn't know what the story pitcher is going to be on the mound throwing them. And I am hoping I got my good stuff today, Edsy. usually got some good stuff. Yeah, well, this is... this is consistent. Uh, You're a consistent guy. I, consistent I, veteran at this point. There we go. There we go. Just a, just a solid number four. <laughs> <laughs> Three to four. Three to four. Three to four. Well, uh, this Can one... Can have an ace appearance every once in a while. Yeah. yeah every once in a while. Uh, solid, but... We're not well, here to analyze ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're not. We're not. You can analyze us uh, by following us on the internet at Doing Baseball on Twitter or at Doing Dot Baseball on Instagram and TikTok. I myself, Sean, uh, am at Sean Do Baseball on Twitter, and I myself, Eds, am at Eds Do Baseball on Twitter. Yes. Not x.com. Not x.com. Twitter, everybody. Find us there. Also, wherever you're finding us, please give us a review, rating, uh, comments, whatever you want to give us. If you have story ideas, we'd love to hear them. Uh, we love doing this. We're coming up on our 100th show to end this season. I believe we're at 94 today. 93. 93. Either way, great number for Toronto baseball hairs. fans. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is. Um, before we get started... We will thank our sponsor, Two Loons Brewing. Uh, Two Loons Brewing, absolutely amazing. Their IPAs on the shelves. Delicious. LCBOs. Good old beers. Beers are great. Uh, check them out if you go to Two Loons Brewing or Two Loons Brewing dot com uh, and look for them at the menu on your local craft beer bar and all of that. And, and they got a lot of great, great stuff on the way. And of course, uh, please be of legal drinking age and uh, enjoy responsibly. Absolutely. You don't want to get carried away. I'm enjoying a two loons right now. Yes, you are. <laughs> all right. So, are we good? We got through all the yeah, stuff? I think we did the stuff. We did the stuff. I'm ready to do some more stuff. I'm ready to do some baseball. All right. Let's do some baseball. And Edzie, a little bit inspired by your, your you know non-biography story. Of last week, I, I decided to, or last week, a couple weeks back, and also thank you, Blake Murphy, for joining yeah, us. Thanks again, Blake. Um, so we are going to be talking about August 8th, 1903, oh. which, for those of you who don't know, is the day we're, or we are recording on August 8th, 2023. So we are okay. talking 120 year anniversary today. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. So our story begins in Philadelphia. On August 8th, 1903. As, as many said. baseball stories back in these <laughs> days do. Absolutely. Today, specifically, is an anniversary, Edzy, that I'm sure you're unaware of. But August 8th is the deadliest day in baseball history. <laughs> okay. That's... All right. I don't, I don't know what that really is going to entail, but obviously death. Obviously death. <laughs> so we start with 13-year-old Maggie Berry, who was asked oh. by her aunt uh, to run an errand. The okay. errand would take her past uh, National League Park, which is other names, I think the Baker Bowl, uh, where the Phillies were playing the second game of a doubleheader against the Boston Bean Eaters. 
now known as the Atlanta Braves. Mm-hmm. The first game had been a fantastic affair requiring extra innings. Boston's Vic Wells, or sorry, Vic Willis threw a 12-inning complete game and had just enough in the tank to hold off a last gas rally from the home team in the bottom of the 12th. And the Bean Eagers edged the Phillies 5-4. to four. Okay. Sounds like quite a game. It was a great game. Just a regular day at the park. Mm-hmm. Game two was just as intense as the, as the first game and was tied 5-5 in the fourth inning. But the game would not be completed. Around 5.30, Maggie would run into some friends outside the stadium, and by 5.45, 12 people would be dead and over 230 injured. What? 12 people? 12 people. Okay. That's... Uh, (laughs) Fuck. Yeah. Something bad's happening, obviously. So, 1903, the Phillies were not a good team. And... In fact, on August 8th, 1903, they had a 31-61 and 61 record. Ooh. Yeah, okay, they really weren't good. Yeah, so even though the product on the field is not that great, the stadium that hosted them was known as the best stadium in baseball. In 1883, Philadelphia was awarded a American, or sorry, National League franchise mm-hmm. and quickly outgrew their first home at Recreation Park, which housed just 6,500 fans. Yeah, okay. It's not very much. Yeah, so fans were turning up in droves, and, and they were like, we can't see you, and things uh, were getting dangerous. Just crowding to, out behind the bleachers, probably. Yeah, so they decided, uh, more importantly, Alfred J. Reach, who owned the Phillies, he decided to build... The Reach Guide guy. Reach. Yeah. Yeah. Writer of the Reach Guide. The Reach Guide. I think, yeah. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> decided to build a larger, more grandiose home for the ball club uh, for the 1887 season. So they get the National League franchise. It gets way too hype. They build another ballpark. Uh, Philadelphia Baseball Park was considered the finest ballpark in the nation when it opened in 1887. Reach had doubled the capacity, allowing 12,500 fans, and and a lot of the structure used brick instead of the hastily constructed wood structures common at the time. Okay. Um, so this is from uh, Rich Westcott uh, uh, in his book for essay Philadelphia Old Baseball Parks. The massive brick pavilion at the main entrance dominated on the outside by a central turret 165 feet high and two end turrets 75 feet high uh, was rev- was as revolutionary in a ballpark construction as it was in medieval appearance. The double-decked grandstand between first and third bases held 5,000 seats, while 7,500 additional customers could be accommodated in the bleachers that extended down the left and right field lines. There were no seats in the outfield. Okay. So they got like... What's that, 13,000? Yeah, basically about that. You can, Sounds like a beautiful stadium, though. Beautiful stadium yeah. for the time. It's and special. This is, this is the Baker Bowl? You'll, we'll get to that. Okay. Um, okay. So still, even with all of the modern amenities, the ballpark did have a considerable amount of wood. And on the morning of August 6th, 1894, so about nine years before what we were talking about, mm-hmm. as the Phillies were preparing for an afternoon game, one of the players noticed a fire or, or fire smoke coming from the wooden grandstands. Oh, shit. So the fire spreads. Uh, ballpark 
Every, burns everything down. Well, but remember the except the, for the bricks. Yeah, the yeah. guts of it are are kind yeah. of there. Yeah. So there's no fatalities. Uh, the the cause of the fire was never really a hundred percent determined. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Phillies were uh, and the Phillies were forced to to play games at at University Field, while the bleachers were being rebuilt. So fires were a real issue for baseball stadiums at the time. As real issue for cities in general at the yeah, time, I think. Yeah. Fire, fire Every would... city's got a great fire story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. When there's a great fire in 90% of cities yeah. and during this time, yeah, yeah it is a, it's, it's the time of, of wood structures. Yeah. Um, so and and heating your house with fire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just get these oil lamps next to this old dry wood. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, a number of baseball stadiums had burnt down. Uh, White Sox had lost virtually everything in a fire in the 1870s, causing the team to fall out of first place. Like they lost all their equipment and stuff too. Wow. Um, so uh, over the coming years, many old wooden stadiums would one by one burn down, including Cincinnati. Uh, stadium and the polo grounds in New York. So with this in mind, Alfred J. Reach decides that this time around he's going to build a fireproof stadium. Okay, famous last words. (laughs) So he pays $225,000 to rebuild the stadium, and he uses mainly steel and brick, with wood only being used for the flooring and some of the bleachers that fans sit on. Okay, smart. So, uh, once again, this is from uh, Lost Ballparks book. It was the first ballpark to feature uh, cantilever construction, a radical new architectural technique in ballpark design. Using cantilevered uh, concrete supports and iron girdles, architects could eliminate most of the columns supporting the upper deck and roof that made for so much obstructed view seating. Uh, A cant... Tilever is a beam supported only on one end. The beam carries the load to support where it is resisted by moment and sheer stress. Cantilever construction allows for overhanging structure without external bracing. That's yeah. I could have just said it with that one last sentence. Yeah, I was gonna. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of I was gonna summarize it after you got through all that, but yeah. you did it yourself. Uh, so quick aside: two hundred twenty-five thousand in nineteen oh three is about uh, seven point eight million dollars. Well, that was in nineteen, or sorry, eighteen ninety-five. Oh, but eighteen ninety-five. Still, that's not a big difference. Okay. I would assume. Right. Um, so that's that's it's they build this new fantastic ballpark. So the newly constructed ballpark opened in 1895 with a seating now for 18,800 people, and many saw the ballpark's construction as a defining moment for the future of baseball stadiums. Mhm. Yeah, I guess it would. Reach spoke proudly of his new ballpark, christened National League Stadium, but would colloquially know, be known as the Baker Bowl. Uh, the new structure, oh, this is Reach's quote, the new structure is mainly of brick and steel containing no wood or other flammable materials except the platform and seats. So it's, he's touting all this, but I love it's yeah. just like, oh, there's no wood except where you sit and stand. Yeah. <laughs> except where you are. Except where you are. Yeah. <laughs> just... Just, it may burn, including you, but the stadium. <laughs> Everything else will be fine. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you probably think uh, I'm teasing a bit about the fire kind of angle on this, but Reach was right. The stadium did its job. It was not a fire trap like so many others at the time. Yeah. Reach would not maintain his ownership of the Phillies for long, though. 
Reach and his partner, John Rogers, who you're going to hear a lot about, sold the team for 170000 following the 1902 season to a group of 24 rich businessmen from Philadelphia and Cincinnati who together formed the Philadelphia Baseball and Entertainment Company. So you'll also notice that, you know, he sold the team for less than he paid for the stadium. Mm-hmm. But in this agreement, he actually still owned the property and they just leased the stadium okay. and everything. So he's actually making money off this, which is very important as we move forward. Okay. So he's smart of him. He owns him and Rogers own the, the land and are getting a lease. So as I say, it's not like they just paid 220 and then just sold the team for 170 and took the right. loss. Right. Um, so they got some value for, you know, yeah. the, the money, the yeah. liquid money they gave up. Well, I and guess. I think they signed the, the, the ownership group, the, the Philadelphia baseball and entertainment company signed like a 13 year lease to start. Okay. So, um, there were no incidents for years. But as you can guess, as we go back to that day, August 8th, 1903, that was all about to change. So the stadium overlooked 15th Street and Lehigh, and that is where we return to 13-year-old Maggie Berry and her friends. So the teenagers, you know, they're 13, 14, whatever group these school children are, yeah. uh, they, they were most likely bored and, and hanging out just outside the stadium was a place to be. There's no... Yeah, there's a lot going on. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing else to do. There's treats. Um, There's hot dogs and popcorn and everything around. And they're bored. They're probably showing off to each other. So two really drunk guys are making their way down 15th Street. Like, (laughs) visibly drunk. Stumbling around. Yeah. and It's not a good start. It it caught the attention of the kids, right? Okay. And a cohort of young teens begin following the two drunks and, you know, chirping them, making fun of them. And, like, you know, throwing pebbles at them and stuff because they're all shit-faced and can't do anything. Um, Doesn't seem like a good idea, though. No, no. So as the men tried to make their way, the teenagers relentlessly teased and harassed the two drunks. One finally had enough and turned and grabbed one of the children by the hair. It was Maggie Berry. So Maggie is being dragged by this... Drunk guy. Drunk Big guy drunk by guy. the hair. She's being screaming and shrieking. Yeah. Uh, and her friends join in the commotion, screaming for the man to let her go and yeah. screaming for, for help. And then someone was screaming literally like, murder, they're, uh, murder. Screaming bloody murder. Literally bloody murder. Yes. Game two was in the fourth inning and tied five to <laughs> okay, five. Okay, I was wondering. <laughs> With two outs and the bean eaters, Joe Stanley at the plate. Stanley was in the midst of a very short career that would most likely have been forgotten had he not been at the dish that day. As he got ready to hit, it became clear the crowd along one side of the stadium, like the 15th Street side, Mm -hmm. were no longer cheering, but clambering to see what was taking place outside of the stadium. Okay, so she's... she's I mean, there's no, like, speakers in the stadium or anything, so, like, you know, this can be heard. Yeah. So... According to the newspaper accounts of the time, an estimated 300 people jammed onto the balcony, uh, the eight-foot balcony, which protruded about three feet over the street to witness the incident unfolding three stories below. Um, And now I'll just go to the Philadelphia Inquirer for what happened next. Uh, And I quote, and I burp, and I quote, suddenly... (laughs) 
Jammed with an immense vibrating weight, the balcony tore itself loose from the wall. The crowd was hurled headlong to the pavement. Those who felt themselves falling grasped those behind, and they turned... <laughs> and they in turn held on to others. Behind were thousands still pushing up to see what was happening. In the twinkling of an eye, the street was piled four deep with bleeding, injured, shrieking humanity struggling amid the piles of debris. Jesus Christ. So the whole thing collapsed because everybody was like... Trying to like lean all, over yeah. and see. And they there all, was so, so much weight in the one area. Yeah. So, wow, that was not built well. No, oh, buddy. <laughs> There's a long, long podcast left. <laughs> okay. Just as getting we, started. As we know, uh, as we know, like, yeah, as, as uh, the, the headline of this is, is 200 hurt, three dead. But now we, we know it was much more, right? I, as I said. So the street was littered with injured, bloody bodies, mm-hmm. and more kept falling as the crowd continued to press upward to see what was happening. So, right, it's just like the, the, the crowd is trying to all get up to see what's happening. It collapses, but they're still pushing because they can't, they're below, they can't. Yeah. Anyway, so, so it's just, it's pandemonium. a waterfall of people yeah. falling off. And actually, I have a, a little bit of a visual for you here if you want to kind of see. Oh, this a is little, a newspaper drawing? A newspaper it? drawing. Let me see it. that again. There you go. Jesus, what a drawing. <laughs> I know. It's pretty graphic. We'll it put is. it on there. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, a police officer told the Philadelphia Inquirer, there must have been 100 men and boys, and every one of them was covered with blood. Some of them had their clothing almost torn from their bodies, while others were so bespattered with blood and mud as to almost be unrecognizable. Under the debris were, f- were the forms of those who were unconscious. You could not tell whether they were dead or alive. Timber, rubbish, and bricks were just piled everywhere. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So. Uh, that sounds awful. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they, this is one thing I could not find stuff on. I was literally Googling it all day today, just trying to find. The, one of the dead is Philly's mascot, Sam Kelly, who just happened to be standing below when the stadium section collapsed. And I don't, I couldn't figure out, you know. I mean, it sucks for everybody, but like he could have been anywhere in the stadium. And, and I don't know who the Sam Kelly Philadelphia mascot is. I couldn't, I still can't find anything about him. Obviously, if you Google Philadelphia mascot, you get a whole bunch of other shit. Yeah. Um, But either way, if anybody knows about this Philadelphia mascot, let us know. Um, But things are like really bad, as you can tell. Uh, and there were generally three reactions by people when something like this happens. Not just then, but just generally. Um, so a majority of people that witnessed what just happened stood gawking in shock at the dreadful scene and basically offered no help, at least to start. Right? They were just yeah. like, what the fuck? What just happened? Yeah. So another group, however, rushes forward. Some to help, but others, in a few cases to snatch the pocketbooks or jewelry off Jesus some of the... Christ. <laughs> yeah, some, there's some people that are it's just like, like, here's my chance. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. So there's, you know, people are like, oh, I gotta help. And then some people are like, oh, that's a nice ring. I mean, not <laughs> to, like, disparage the good people of Philadelphia. But, like, Philadelphia fans have a bad reputation. <laughs> and it starts here. And it starts early, apparently. Yeah. Um... But as, as Mr. Rogers told us, Fred Rogers, the great PBS 
you know, Mr. Rogers, always look for the helpers. And there were lots of helpers to be found. Okay, well, that's good. The locals who lived nearby sprung into action and offered their homes as, you know, triage stations and, and you know, hospitals, I guess, until they could be transported to the real hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, the scale of the disaster was beyond what the first responders on scene could handle. And they had to take immediate action alongside some of the public that was just helping to save as many lives as possible. Sounds like a war zone. Yeah. So carriages are commandeered. Trolley trains are, are like force passengers off. And they're just like, no, we're an ambulance now. Yeah. Like yeah. you're taking these people to the hospital. Uh, and both Samaritan Hospital and St. Luke's Hospital, which were the two closest hospitals to the field, were soon just overwhelmed. As mm-hmm. like, we had over 200 people injured. Right, it is just not something that a hospital even today would be mm-hmm. used to just having show yeah, up at you, your door. You can't, yeah, yeah. So, Eds, at this point, the game stopped. Yeah, I guess so. And the crowd in the rest of the stadium is now realizing what happened, and instead of running up trying to see what happened, which caused it, now things turn and fans just begin to rush the field. Okay. Because they, they're scared that the stadium is going to oh, okay. collapse, yeah. right? They realize, holy shit, a chunk of the stadium's missing. Fair enough, yeah. So The uh, structural integrity has been compromised. Yeah, yeah. So the field is just full of fans that are absolutely terrified. The batter, or the batters, the players, don't really know what's happening. Some of them, like, grab bats, and they're, like, you know, like, just sitting there in a position like they're going to yeah. hit somebody because they're just don't, they're scared too. Yeah. And this is from The Sporting Life. Uh, so this is basically gives you an idea of what it was like. The sound of breaking timbers and the cry of those caught in the fall gave rise to a belief that the whole of the stand was about to fall. With wild cries of fear, the crowd rose and made a rush for the field. They clambered over the seats and over one another, screaming, swearing, striking, and fighting for precedence in the mad rush for safety. They tore at one another's clothing and behaved like insane men. Wow. What a what a scene this must have been. Like just it, like I say, it sounds like a war zone. Yeah. And it's like a riot at this point. Yeah. People are hurt. No doubt some people get hurt like in the everybody rush. Everybody in the stadium is going for I'm the sure field. it's much more localized and then kind of grows as people you know, people there's that like herd mentality. When you yeah. see other people panicking, you like, panic. Well, let's get out of here, <laughs> yeah. dude. Yeah. So Inside, things are not good, but outside, things are, of course, really bad. At this point, it's clear about a 150-foot section along the top of the stadium had collapsed along 15th Street. Uh, and as I, in the end, 12 fans would be dead, and 232 would be injured to varying degrees. Fuck, that's insane. So from the Philadelphia Inquirer the day after. Uh, it was customary during the era for people... Uh, adults and children to wear hats to baseball games and over a hundred hats were gathered from the debris and placed in the window of a grocery store on 15th street waiting for their owners to reclaim them so it's just like a sad that is yeah sad i mean most of the hats would have been reclaimed like not every only 12 people died but still you'd think like just see the hats get slowly picked up or Mm -hmm. you know it's just yeah Ah, it's 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 a weird, morbid up. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but they're trying to just... I mean, it's like, a nice... Yeah, yeah. I guess it's a nice thought, but... 
Yeah, so, and and here's, and now, now it's when we get really into the weird shit. So in a stunning move that no authorities at the scene stopped, once victims were removed, the cleanup began almost immediately, with park employees clearing the debris within hours. Which, if you're an within investigator... Hours. Yeah, with, if you're an investigator, like, that, yeah. that's not good. No. So, in fact, two days later, a city coroner requested that no debris be removed from the site so it could be examined as part of the investigation. But by that point... It was all gone. It was... Uh, so, some, most of it. You'll see. Luckily, a building inspector uh, named John H. Kessler arrived on the scene. It was, like, his area. Yeah. Uh, and, and he secured pieces of the joists and, and specimens of brick and mortar, which he took to City Hall to be placed into evidence. The club president, Potter, was vacationing in Saratoga, New York. So the main man in charge that day was Philly's business manager, William Schatzline. In the immediate aftermath, according to the Philadelphia Inquirer, he was so badly prostrated by the shock that he could scarcely tell a coherent story. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So not the best man to be in charge of a disaster. No. (laughs) Um... So the next day, the team would release a statement saying the accident was in no way due to any lack of proper precautions or neglect or neglect on part of officials of the club. And the pavilion and stands were in perfect condition and for the purposes intended were safe and reliable. But the simultaneous rush of several hundred persons to concentrated point weakened the structure and precipitated several hundred unfortunate persons crashing to the street below okay that that makes sense it like i mean i guess they're saying they didn't break the regulation but i think we can all agree that you'll see (laughs) did they break a regulation oh you'll see Uh, okay um so potter quickly returned uh and was accompanied by national league president harry pulliam Uh, Potter appeared before the press on August 10th and said basically the same thing. The accident was tragic, but it was not the fault of the Philadelphia Phillies. This didn't necessarily work as the Inquirer's, uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer's headline on August 11th read, Rotten beams caused crash, says the mayor. Oh, so the mayor's throwing accusations out there. That's right. Okay. So Philadelphia Mayor John Weaver... (laughs) <laughs> Pardon? Rotting beams. You'll see. Philadelphia's Mayor John Weaver visited the site of the tragedy and opined to the press, I am not a builder, but it looks to me as if the construction of the balcony was faulty. He also complained about not having enough building instru- inspectors and saying building inspectors were under no obligation to inspect buildings except theaters after they had been completed unless some complaint was made. What? Building inspectors were only to inspect theaters? Well, I think he said after it was built. So he's okay. like, oh, they were okay. here for the construction, but they haven't yeah. They haven't come back since. Okay. I thought it was all made of steel, this whole thing. Well, remember the floorboards and stuff are... are uh, okay. Where so. people walk are wood. Right. Okay. So that's all collapsed and they've that, all... Yeah, through. that's I the part. You. I got um, So... Um, but as a... Remember, the Philadelphia Baseball and Entertainment Company didn't own the stadium per se. They just leased it. So Reach and his partner, 
Colonel John Rogers still owned the building and the land that it sat upon, mm-hmm. right? So they both also returned hastily after the incident. Rogers released a lengthy statement to the press talking about the maintenance and construction of the stadium, as well as saying the new club owners who took possession on March 1st follow, March 1st followed, as Mr. Scheltline, Scheltzline informs me, the same rule last spring and spent a large sum of maintenance and repair before their opening game. One thing is certain, that the mad rush of an excited crowd suddenly jumping to a, to the balcony and pushing everything irresistibly before it would have crushed any similar structure, no matter how strongly or recently built. It was a football center rush multiplied infinitely that few, if any, walls could have withstood. Okay. <laughs> I disagree. Oh, and, and, I mean, and like and, you should be able to build a building that like can, that can withstand like you know I mean in the stadium you could be argued that like if everyone in the stadium was standing in one corner you could expect you know some yes. partial collapse or something but a building itself like you should be able to have everyone hiding in one corner and it not fall the fuck down. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, and you're going to see that, that some of that's bullshit just based on testimony coming up in the future. Okay. Um, so, but there was an issue as even the day after, uh, August 9th, the Philadelphia Inquirer reported a cursory glance at the debris before its removal by the ballpark employees showed that much of the timber was in a badly decayed state. While the main body of the wall looked firm, the bricks about the top where the joists protruded were loose and some of them looked as though the mortar had been worn or washed away. Oh, that doesn't sound good at all. Yep. So... August 10th, uh, two days after the incident, the first lawsuit is filed. Okay. So, attorney John R.K. Scott, counsel for Walter Mariner and Harry Quigley, two of the men injured in the collapse, file suit against the Philadelphia Baseball Club and Exhibition Company to receive damages uh, for injuries sustained. It was alleged in statements of claim that the defendant company was negligent in maintaining the overhanging promenade in a condition which was unsafe for patrons of the ballpark. So, as you can guess, that is not the only lawsuit. Eventually, 80 lawsuits, over 80. over 80 lawsuits are filed. Okay. Seeking damages of over $1 million collectively. So, Thought it'd be more. Yes. Yeah, that's I mean, still a lot. That's a lot, you know. right? So... Coroner uh, Thomas Duggan, who had been like, well, they shouldn't remove any of that stuff. And they were like, we already did. Uh, (laughs) He held an inquest into the incident, which started on August 18th. And this is where a lot of this testimony comes from, because the coroner's inquest sometimes can, you'll see, do better than the courts. Numerous people were summoned to testify in front of a six-member jury, all of whom were professional builders. So the jury... It's already biased one way. No, not necessarily. They know their stuff. Okay. They they are all they're all experts in in buildings, so they can determine whether they fucked up or not. Right. Okay. So I got where you're going. R.C. Ballinger, whose company had erected the balcony and the bleachers at the ballpark, he said the balcony had been constructed only to accommodate those pa- fans passing to and from the bleachers. Ballinger noted that the supporting joints were built of the best yellow pine lumber with an average life of seven to nine years. But it was not intended to withstand a mob and said, I can't see where anyone has any reason to blame anyone but himself. 
I, if an accident of the sort had happened while they were seated, they might have complained. So he's like, why would you, why are you complaining? Like, if you collapsed they when you sat. They all just ran over the app and collapsed just under normal circumstances. Yeah. I got you. So all of these guys testify. There's guys from the Phillies testifying. There's the builders testifying. And there's the property owners testifying. So Colonel Rogers, uh, of course, claimed that there was nothing wrong with any of the timber. Something he had apparently said before, ac- before according to the testimony of James Potter. Uh, Potter said that when his corporation took over the Phillies in February 1903, Colonel Rogers assured him that the stands were the strongest and safest in the world. Rogers would later dispute this testimony by Potter. Uh, He did testify that if asked before the accident if the stands were safe, he would have answered to the effect that to the best of my knowledge and belief, the stands were sound and safe. It doesn't sound like you're that sure of it. Yeah. And the fact that, like, when you... I feel like when you boast that they're the safest in the world, it's like a little bit of a red flag. Yeah, and you're like, well, if somebody... This ship's unsinkable. (laughs) If somebody had asked you before this happened whether it was safe, would you have said yes? Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) To the best of my knowledge, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you'll, You'll see, it gets a little more ridiculous. So Ed Clark... Uh, Edward Clark, I shouldn't, uh, Edwards, uh, Edward Clark, an engineer of the Bureau of Building Inspection, disagreed with Rogers. He had examined the accident scene and found 50 of the wooden support, support joists in the area where the balcony had collapsed were rotten and worthless. Oh, 50? Yeah. 10 were 75% bad, 14 were 50% bad. Only two joists were in good condition. He claimed that hammering tin coverings on the wood caused holes for condensation and precipitation to get in and build up and cause rot. The, this opinion was held by the mayor as well as by other witnesses who displayed rusty nails and degraded tin. Jesus Christ. So this Ballinger dude, when he was building it, told Rogers, apparently, that, like, oh, we're just going to put tin on the wood, and it protects the wood from rotting. Mm-hmm. And Rogers was like, it's invincible, everybody! Yeah. <laughs> Not knowing that... It, it just creates condensation in there, and it's, in fact, much worse yeah. than if you just left it exposed. And here's the part that's even worse, is the this this Edward Clark guy, the, the building inspector, engineer guy, he also claims that the lumber used for the joist was hemlock, not pine disputing what Ballinger had said. So this is very serious because it means essentially... It's softer? Yeah, it's inferior wood. Okay, yes. Uh, had been used in the ballpark's construction, but this was never investigated further, right? And you don't know whether it was the builders that did it, maybe it was the owners that did it, maybe it was something done to just like cut costs mm-hmm. of the building and stuff like that, which, but it's never really investigated further, which you'd think people would want to like figure out, wait... Yeah. Why is the builder saying it was pine when it was hemlock, Mm -hmm. right? So, weird. Um, Now to get to my favorite, favorite, absolute favorite part of the entire testimony. Um, (laughs) Okay. This is taken directly from uh, Ed Morton uh, on uh, phillysaber.com. And I quote, 
Joseph Schroeder, groundskeeper, 1895 to 1902, was a landscaper. He described making thorough inspection of the timbers when the walkways was replaced in 1990 by sounding them with a sledgehammer and by use of an ice pick. He, follow, he was followed by Sam Payne, who succeeded Schroeder as groundskeeper. Payne was a former contractor who had built houses for Rogers. Uh, for Roger's real estate interest. He describes sounding the support timbers by thumping the floor with a crowbar in the spring of 1903. The jurymen shook their heads at this description. <laughs> He's like, I hit him with a crowbar. It seemed fine. It made the right sound. Yeah. I tested them by damaging them. That's <laughs> <laughs> what the old guy, he'd used an ice pick. Yeah. I used a crowbar. I didn't stab them like the old guy. Yeah. I just hit them real hard. Hey, so the, the jury's like, what the fuck is you going on? You guys know what I'm talking about. You guys know what a good board <laughs> sounds like when you hit it with a crowbar, right? <laughs> Gives you that pump. Uh, so the, the jury's like, fuck, okay. So the next day, the jury stopped hearing from everybody trying to cast blame or hide blame mm -hmm. and instead heard from the victims, including Maggie Berry, who survived. Thank God. Yeah. So it was a very bleak day as the victims uh, relived their trauma. And then with that, after that, the, the inquest came to an end. But as the hearing came to a close, Ballinger, the builder guy, rose from his seat and requested the privilege of adding to his testimony. Permission was granted, and Ballinger started by stating that he... And I quote, distinctively told Colonel Rogers that all of them should be inspected thoroughly every year. <laughs> just, okay. Just they're like, okay, we're done. We'll go adjourn and we'll come back with a verdict. He's like, no, no, I, I, I told him to be safer. <laughs> I said check it every year. Not never. Yeah. So the coroner's inquest. That's to check the steel wrapped wooden beams. Tin. But Tin yes. wrapped. Yeah. Yes. yes. Okay. Um, so, remember, this is the coroner's inquest. It's not like a court, but uh, the, the, the jury comes back with an absolutely excoriating verdict. The jury finds the f failing of a balcony on the left field stand on 15th Street, which caused the deaths of Joseph, Joseph Edgar and 11 others at Philadelphia Baseball Park, was due to rotting condition of supporting timbers. We further find that the Philadelphia Baseball Club Limited... Uh, as well as Rogers and Reach, were responsible for not having a thorough examination made of those timbers throughout the time of their ownership, and in stating at the time of the transfer that the buildings on the grounds were in first-class condition. So they're like... Okay. So they're like, those guys lied. As and they're fault. responsible. Yeah. They also recommended expanded powers for city building instructor or inspectors. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we're like, yeah, we ain't building shit with hemlock anymore, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess not. So after that, Colonel Rogers, like, there, there's no consequences to this. This is just like the finding, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so after that, Colonel Rogers begins attacking the others in the press and basically trying to pass the buck. He disputed Potter's recollection of their conversations and Ballinger testimony right at the end being like I told him he's like no you didn't shut up and he uses the press to like do this yeah um, so he also claimed uh, that Ballinger had promised him the wood would last years longer so he's he's essentially just so he's trying to throw the builder under the bus and yeah basically you know what kind of what you were alluding to earlier what may have happened is you know 
he gave him so much money, and then he bought cheaper wood. Yeah. So the groups... But who knows if that happened? Who knows? Because they never investigated. Yeah. So the group's lawyers continued to maintain that the structure was sound and would have lasted years longer without repair, if not for the rush of people. Therefore, the team and the stadium owners should not be held responsible in a court of law. The biggest problem with that... Well, my biggest problem with that is that many of the victims claim to not be in the rush, but either innocently leaving or just got caught up in the mob or as just fell into the gaping hole that as the stadium collapsed. Yeah. And it's like some people were grabbing onto people trying to not fall in the hole and drag them down. Like there is so many things that, that happened that day that innocent people could have got caught up with just passing all the blame to the the people is in my opinion wrong Mm -hmm. uh and and as we talked about some of the people were on the street below that got killed yeah um and this unfortunate thing i'd see is the supreme court of the usa would agree with philadelphia philly's lawyers Mm -hmm. six years i'm not surprised six years After the catastrophe and all the lawsuits filed by the victims, they went all the way to the Supreme Court. And unfortunately for the victims, the court ruled that an extraordinary number of fans had congregated at the location where many of them should not have been. And consequently, that neither the ball club nor the ballpark's landlords should be held responsible for the accident. Uh, it, it, it like makes you sick, but like once again, uh, based on our one of our early episodes on like the deaths in baseball and stuff, I'm not surprised at all. No, that that the side of the owners and the and the landlords was taken. I mean, like, but in this case, there's like clearly. Like the oh, coroner's clear, inquest, clear negligence on their part, oh. completely. Like, I mean, once again, as a like as I was saying earlier, they they I guess technically didn't break any regulations, but you know the regulations, yeah, obviously weren't strong enough, yeah, and also just like you know, God forbid you build a building that's strong enough to hold everybody, like in a, you know. Hold everybody in an emergency situation. Yeah, like if 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 you're having a big party, and you have forty people on your second floor and it collapses, well, maybe you shouldn't have been having that party. But also, normally there's not forty people in your house, but your floor shouldn't collapse either. (laughs) Yes, like that. That would be a builder's responsibility. Exactly. So I mean, in the end, the Supreme Court. Just completely, even though the coroner's inquest was like, yeah, you guys are at fault. Mm-hmm. It, there's no real, like, everybody loses money on this except for lawyers, basically. Yes. Basically, you know, the, <laughs> the, 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 you'll see, the, the team. So back to the baseball. Uh, the Phillies would attempt to restart games at the ballpark just two days after the accident. Oh, God. Yeah. You just got this gaping hole. And yeah. said gaping hole reminder in the side of the bleachers. Yeah, they're like, we'll, we'll rope it off. Don't worry about it. We'll put some Phillies blankets on top of it and you'll never know. <laughs> so city officials were like, no. But fuck you. (laughs) No. No games can be played at this ballpark until it's thoroughly inspected Mm -hmm. and, you know, everything. So all games were canceled uh, until inspection, and the Phillies would play 
at uh, the Athletics home field. Remember, the Athletics are also in right. at this time. Columbia Sh- Park. Park. Oh, Columbia. Yeah, we'll get to Shive in a second. Okay. Uh, God was clearly really mad at the Phillies because they got rained out nine games in a row before losing their first game back on August 20th. Damn. Being off for nine games, you'd lose you'd lose a step a bit. Yeah. So they'd, uh, they'd play uh, 16 games at their temporary home, going nine... Or sorry, six, nine, and one, uh, and finishing uh, this season uh, in a there they shit. They were seventh in the NL. I think there was eight teams. The disaster would influence future stadium construction as builders began to use concrete instead of wood to form the bleachers, including in Forbes Field and Shibe Park. A few years later. All right, that makes sense. Yeah, so here's the, this is from the the opening day program at Shy Park, which uh, kind of uh, you know it's in Philadelphia, so it, it references it. It ain't gonna fall down. It's <laughs> yeah. made of concrete. <laughs> it's all there. Even the place where you walk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the construction. It's hard on your feet, but it's safe. <laughs> so in the construction of seating provisions of previous ballparks, the use of wood was general. Several unfortunate accidents called serious attention to the need of something more durable than wood for the safety of the enormous crowds which thronged parts where winning baseball was being played. So that's literally from being like, welcome to Shad Park. You won't die. (laughs) A winning baseball park equals a winning team. Yeah. Um, And in the aftermath, as you can tell, I mean, the lawsuits took its toll. Uh, also just like it was a it's just generally a disaster the Philadelphia ownership uh, group that took over uh, the Potter group as we talked about they they would go bankrupt soon after if you want more go to check out the, the Ed's uh, uh, Philly Sabre article on it it goes much more into the bankruptcy of the team afterwards Okay. Uh, with the disaster no doubt being the catalyst uh, for that so the stadium would be repaired and stay home to the Phillies until 1938 and in fact was the site of Babe Ruth's last major league game uh, in 1935 hmm. the stadium would be torn down in 1950 and in case you were wondering Edzie the two drunks that <laughs> grabbed Maggie I was wondering no one knows what happened. They just got away, I guess. Yeah, they disappeared into the... the, in, the in that pandemonium. Yeah. They got lost and all that. Just just disappeared into history. Wow, that's a crazy story. And I'm surprised, actually, as, you know, I consider myself someone who's, you know, more interested than most in uh, stadium history. Yeah. I, I was unfamiliar with that story of, of the Baker Bowl, so... That's yeah. awesome. Thanks for telling that terrible, terrible story <laughs> from baseball history. Well, you'll be. <laughs> this comes out on the 9th of August, but uh, yeah, 120 years ago today, to the day we're recording this, this disaster took place. And, and I'm gathering, and hopefully, it's the deadliest day in baseball history for a long time to come. I hope so. Forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, at least our lifetimes. Yeah, well, thanks for that, John. Uh, well, until next time, uh, make sure you follow us, give us a review, give us a like, uh, whatever. If you know about that Phillies mascot, tell us about them. Uh, Ed's, where can they find us? <laughs> uh, they can find us on Twitter at Doing Baseball and on Instagram and TikTok at Doing Dot Baseball. And he's uh, quickly mentioned you can also find me at Ed's Do Baseball. On Twitter. And I'm at Sean Do Baseball. 
Uh, we're here every two weeks. We're really excited uh, to be sharing some baseball history with you. And uh, until next time, I'm Sean. And I'm Ed. And we were bringing you the baseball. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.